Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm good, um, and uh, I'm quite happy uh, uh, for our podcast episode today uh, because once again, uh, we have our colleague Hillary Miller uh, joining us uh, to discuss all kinds of fun, fun stuff, technical language alert. Um, maybe <laughs> I should get, uh, Hillary, maybe I should go ahead and get that trademark uh, fun stuff, right? <laughs> Uh, but we're going to talk about fun stuff related to uh, patents, copyrights, trademarks. Um, um, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why I'm a, uh, I'm a happy boy this morning. So, Hillary, just so you know, Augie has taken lately, um, he's excited about Paris Hilton being able to copyright that's hot, right? Isn't that what she used to say? And uh so but anyway she, she that's where it. he's coming with with cool stuff is that's going to be augie's <laughs> augie's phrase she, was she able she to copyright it she didn't get it copyrighted okay. she got it trademarked trademark okay? that's okay. right okay. Trade and, 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 and listeners in a previous podcast episode um we, we had hillary uh, join us um and we were talking about uh trademarks okay Yep. Um, and um, and and copyrights, um, um, because um, those are areas, uh, particularly with copyrights. Um, uh, Hillary is, um, well, I mean, let's face it, she's an expert on a lot of things, but she's uh, definitely an expert as it relates to copyrights. But no, <laughs> uh, a, a, a Paris Hilton <laughs> got a trademark, and she successfully sued the Hallmark. Uh, folks, okay, uh, because they used her trademarked "that's hot" expression. Yes, which you think Hallmark like that's so weird anyway. But first of all, good morning, Hillary. Welcome. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> we just jumped right in because we're excited to have you here. No, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm jumping in with you. So first things first, which is I used to work. Um, okay, so our library used to be a patent and depository library, and the library I previously worked for was a patent and tra trademark depository library, which means that you can go there to those libraries to do research. Now, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University is no longer that. We refer people to the patent office itself, where you can go and look through patents and do all kinds of research and all that other kind of stuff. You can also see a patent lawyer if you have a brilliant, fabulous idea. But what used to happen is people would come in and they would say, I have an idea for a patent. And you would say, oh, great, well, tell me about it. And then they would say, I can't, because they didn't want you to steal their idea, which I can appreciate at one level, but I cannot help you do research if you don't tell me what you were researching. Like right. those search terms of... need to be pretty specific. You can't <laughs> exactly. hold out too much. Exactly, that's like saying, look up on Google Air. You know, like I just, it's too, it's too, we're going to have to narrow that just a little bit. So first things first, I want to talk about the process, if you don't mind terribly. So I have a brilliant patentee idea for 
a better mousetrap, a better mousetrap than the mousetrap that is, I believe, one of the early patents, but it's not the first one, I don't think. Um, but anyway, what, what, what is the generalized process for getting a patent? So there is a pretty lengthy, detailed application process to what's called the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and I was reviewing their website, and I'm, I'm telling you, I got immediately intimidated as a person who has ideas all the time, left and right, just what if this, what if that, what if that, and I looked at this website and this process, and I thought, never mind, never mind, never mind. Um, uh, my it's, idea it's is really not worth intense. it. <laughs> yeah, it's really intense, which I think in one sense is helpful because you don't want people filing just frivolous, you know, anything. But they actually receive, I was doing the website, maybe about 500,000 patent applications a year. So that's a lot of people who aren't as intimidated by this website as I am, clearly. But there, there are a few key things. Or, or, or excuse me, Hillary. Yeah. Or they got a lot of other um, <laughs> issues, okay? Which free time. I don't think, Strange I don't, amount of free time. Okay. Which I don't think this podcast episode is going to get into. Okay, but nevertheless, let's we just go to... with the fact that they're really they have they're really excited about their great idea. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. patenters are a unique breed of people. They are a people who fundamentally are exploring the universe at its basic level, so that they can change it, rebuild it, and making something else. Right. So, like yeah. that's a it's cool, but it also puts them in sort of a a breed apart kind of they're artists in a way that's very mm -hmm. it's very different by the way the first pod the first uh patent was for the making of pot ash and pearl ash by a new apparatus and process in 1790 if which i'm sure at the time that was super important mm -hmm. but anyway so back to the process hillary yeah well because so, by the end of the episode um nia is going to go uh, is going to want to <laughs> file uh, a patent application, right, Nia? Heck yeah, I got okay. ideas. All right. Well, first <laughs> off there, your, your idea has to meet some criteria to begin with. So it has to be novel in the sense that you didn't get it from somewhere else. No one else has proposed it before. Um, I really like this concept of non-obviousness. So if you're a <laughs> mousetrap designer and any old mousetrap designer or, or, or you know, extermination specialist could just look at this and say this isn't of, of course the clamp goes here it goes down here that's how simple machines work right like you can't yeah, Hillary, you can't patent something that everyone else would look at and go duh Hillary, <laughs> yeah. what, came to, what came to my mind was you know the the the, the punchline of many jokes oh captain obvious right mm -hmm. okay yep. <laughs> like i can't patent a wheel no but you because wheels couldn't... were discovered yeah. and, and created way back in, you know, mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago. So, yeah. okay. But it also doesn't have to be, it's, it's like a lot of other legal tests, you know, they use like the reasonable person test, you know, would this to, to a reasonable <laughs> person, any person on the street, this is specifically to a, a, I guess, a reasonable person who has knowledge of the art is, is what they frequently refer to the so you could say it would, it would be the kind of Captain Obvious joke that might be made among a group of really extremely knowledgeable, well-trained engineers in a certain <laughs> field. 
<laughs> I may think this is groundbreaking stuff, but a, a room full of, of those folks think it's too obvious. Ah. Probably not going to get a patent. Okay. Um, and you have to, I, I think all of this is really interesting because to me, it did seem a little bit counterintuitive when I first started learning about this stuff. Um, your application has to prove enough to the examiner um, that it's possible for it to work. Um, they're not going to go out and test it, you know, behind the fact, but you have to, you have to lay it out. You may need diagrams, you may need drawings, you have all the steps that go into creating it, making it work enough so that that person who probably does have some technical expertise doesn't just again, look at it and go, Oh, a time machine. That's, that's nice. <laughs> Isn't that so you, so you push this button here and this button there and it works. Sounds like a great process. No, you have to really, really go into detail. And in, 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 in by the way, listeners, um, you know, you can go online and mm -hmm. you can pull up accepted patents yes and you will see the diagrams or drawings that hillary is referencing yeah right? they're called figures yeah they're figure called figures. one figure two figure three and they mm -hmm. really are like with little dotted arrows to show you how something would move or how something would would produce another thing so yeah unless you could actually and, and, make a time machine that worked that showed you somehow arriving in the past, just you with a box with some buttons that say, turn this to get the past would uh, be it, a delightful, it, it, but it would probably not pass snuff with their, with their engineers, I would it, assume. And here's the thing, uh, listeners, when you click on some of these figures, I mean, cause some of these patents, you know, the three of us have done some research, right? And some of these patents made us chuckle. Right, but some patent examiner, okay, who signed off on it, okay, looked at the figures and said, "Oh, this would work." Right? I mean, so you know, for some of these, I you know, you know, sled pants, okay, so that you know you can <laughs> you know put on sled pants and commute to work. Okay, I mean, there was a patent application for this, right? Okay, there is the head exerciser, okay, which actually did get a patent in 1923, okay, but there are figures that show how the head exerciser would work, theoretically. And, and yes. by the way, Augie, can you describe briefly how that would work? <laughs> yes, please. Okay, so there were plates, okay, that would be inserted into your mouth that you would clamp down with your teeth, okay? And the plates were attached to the other person via a spring device. And as each person pulls away, it becomes like a tug of war game, okay? Or, 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 or think about playing tug of war with your pet, right? Okay. Except both of you have the rope in your mouth, not just your pet. Yes. It, I mean, the, the danger here is for your teeth, I would assume. Well, not only, not only your teeth, but apparently, just like in the game of tug of war, if you really want to go ahead and have so, uh, fun with your opponent, you basically just like give up. Okay. Oh, and, let, and it jerks back. Right. So it jerks back. Okay. But the and, the, and was, then they get whiplash. Nice. So, the, and some the, engineer was like, sounds good to me. <laughs> But the thought was each person's force and head weight 
okay, would be enough to go ahead and exercise your head and neck muscles. Yeah, it's resistance training, but boy, is it dangerous resistance <laughs> training. <laughs> anyway, First of all, Hillary, put this in your mouth and, you know, be careful. Okay, so Hillary, team. back to the process <laughs> yeah. because me and I, okay. <laughs> we could go we on are, for hours. Oh, my goodness. As we are wont to do, we are digressing all over the place. We are doing that. Sorry, Hillary. Okay, so Hillary, you submit your application and a hearing examiner. Wait, 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 wait. We're missing a step. So there's all these things that it has to prove, but then isn't there, aren't there Benjamins involved in this? Isn't yes. there money involved in? There is money involved. You in can't this. just submit a patent. Like, nope. so these 500,000 people who submitted, how much did they, how much did they pay each? Oh my goodness. Well, it depends on which fees they had to pay. There's an application filing fee. I'll just throw the basic ones out there for a basic utility patent. There's $320. The patent search fee is $700 because they've got to do a search of past patents to see if your idea has already been uh, you know, invented by someone else. There's a patent examination fee, $800. There is a patent post allowance fee. I'm not sure what that is, but it's $1,200. If you need an extension of time, there's $220. If you would like to have prioritized examination, it's $4,200. Whoa. And what I think is interesting, there are also fees after the fact. There are these maintenance fees you have to pay if you get your patent. Uh, I think it's in years three, three and a half years, seven years, 11 years out maybe, um, which again, I think are in, in the thousands of dollars each of those times. And what happens is you get a 20 year life of your patent. If you don't pay those maintenance fees, your patent will expire. Uh, so that may be helpful if you aren't making any money <laughs> on it and you just say, never mind, let it expire. Uh, if you are making some money, it might be worth it, but it's, so it's, the, it's not cheap. The cheap route is $3,240. And that's, no, sorry, $3,040. And that's without your 4,200, I want it tomorrow, go quick, go quick thing, which would make it $7,240. That's to get them to tell you, no, it's already been patented by someone else because that's the risk, right? Is yes. that you will pay this huge chunk of change and mm -hmm. it will turn out, which is why the patent office usually suggests to you that you go see a lawyer first. Yes. You patent see a lawyer, patent lawyer or patent agent who are registered, they're have to be registered by the patent office. Because they're you. usually cheaper, mm -hmm. aren't they, than having it done I mean, the patent office, that's one way they discourage some of that, I assume, is they send you to a patent lawyer who's $200 an hour who says, dude, we found it in the first search we did yeah. in like 10 minutes. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't have right. this patent. Or this doesn't meet this threshold of, you know, non-obviousness of novelty <laughs> of, or, or your application isn't ready yet. You haven't explained anything you need to explain for someone to, to be able to use your invention. Yep. Hillary, you mentioned... Okay, so you could go to a patent attorney, or you could go to a registered patent agent. So how does how does one uh, become a patent agent? Do you do, do you know like 
what's the, the, the general profile of a patent agent? I don't, are, are, so yeah. Are these I, like firms that, you know, advertise their services that say, you know, we, we have been researching patents and we have helped people um, achieve, you know, their patent dreams, okay? <laughs> I mean, I mean- the, the, Do you remember that there were commercials? Do you remember the commercials about the caveman who was tinkering with a rock and he invented the yes. wheel? Yes, I remember, yes, yeah, yes. I'd forgotten about those. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's I mean, definitely, this sounds, yeah. This sounds a little sleazy to me. I actually right? know an answer to this. Oh, okay. I, weird, huh? Because I don't usually know the answer to Oh, this. hush. But, oh, hush. Um, so a patent agent is a person who has passed the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's patent bar exam. <laughs> so they have a test that you have to take that shows that you understand how to tell whether somebody has. So basically what you are is a junior examiner that doesn't actually work for the patent office. Yeah, and because I think you have to pass whatever test that is. Who have worked for them before who have gone into, I guess you'd be right, like into the, the market of working with inventors. Right. So some of them I think will have technical expertise. Like if I, you know, cause I thought I had thought about law school before for copyright law, if I wanted to make the big dollars. <laughs> you the listeners listen up if you're thinking although don't become a patent troll please uh <laughs> law school intellectual property patent specialization oh. especially if you've got a background in engineering or computer science or any of these fields whoa yeah yeah I, I, yeah, you, hillary, yeah you will make a killing hillary to your point i have recommended that to some of my students who were double majors in like politics and engineering or mm -hmm. politics and biology or chemistry. And they're like, I want to go to law school. And I'm like, you ought to think about intellectual property law. And they're like, yeah. why? And I said, well, it will merge your two interests, mm -hmm. law and, you know, X science. But I said, just do some research about how much money they are pulling down these days. Right. Well, because, because when you consider that it's corporations who are protecting mm -hmm. their interests, they yeah. will pay top dollar to do that. Yeah. And, but and it's also you know, highly, I mean, it really is highly specialized. Like you look at some of, I mean, 500,000 a year, the volume of this. And sometimes you start to, I start to think like, this, this is too complicated. We don't need all of this, but it's extremely specialized to have that in-depth legal background and all of this technical expertise, it's, you would be in extremely high demand. Well, I and mean, if it, you did it for, as an attorney, you would make a lot more money than you would make working at the patent office. Because frankly, as the patent office, you're still a GS, you're, right? You're still in the system yes. of government employees and there's only so much money you can make. The president makes $400,000. So you're probably not gonna make a huge amount more than that. But as a intellectual property attorney, th that would be the low end probably of what you would make if you were at the one of the higher end firms that protects things like the electronics and computing and you know all that other kind of stuff wow yeah but i mean it's, so, and it's and it's not even it's not only patents um i mean think about for instance again we discussed this in a previous podcast episode where hillary joined us right um a lot of copyright worked works okay are not what we 
traditionally think in regards to copyright mm -hmm. works, you know, like, you know, a, a book, okay, or, or a song, or, or a song, right? Okay, you're talking about, you know, copyrighted works in regards to computer programming, right? right? Codes, exactly. Okay, um, and, 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 those, and those, those, if you will, conflicts are what make really difficult Supreme Court cases, right? Yeah, if you think Office won't defend, if you think Microsoft won't defend Office Word, you're insane because they make a, an enormous amount of money off of that. So Hillary, so the process, it's what, like a week, two weeks turnaround, you find out uh -huh. it's all fabulous? <laughs> no, I think the average is about 18 months. Oh. And I actually found, I found on the website, uh, they have a, they have lovely little charts where they're um, displaying sort of live data on how long uh, it, it's taking for this. And actually that's, that's not even, that's the first office action because what I found anecdotally through some of the research on this is it has never, it's harder than ever to get a patent approved. And it's very common for your application to be denied on the first round. And you have to go back if you really think it should have been approved and revise, it's just like a publishing process, revise, resubmit, like dispute, go back through this process. Um, so that, you know, there's a, the, the traditional total pendency they call the average number of months from filing to the date the application reaches final disposition, 24 months. So that's, wow. that's a long process. And that it's usually needs to be done before you really start marketing or selling this product in earnest, because if you do that too soon and you're not patent protected, right. uh, you, th that's, that's a no-no. So you well, will actually and risk losing your patent or at least losing some of the I, you know, some of the rights that you would have associated with it. And the other thing is you, in 24 months, you, um, I would assume, would lose some investors. Like, that's a long time if you start at the very beginning with getting your investors to keep them interested before they can even see any sort of, like, even see a product. So, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so two years. And it can, and, and, so and that five hundred thousand, those five hundred thousand people are very devoted to this idea. Yes. And it can be hyper competitive, right? I mean, you know, that's the thing. When you file a patent application, chances are, you know, you you know, you will be aware that there are other people working on um, a similar invention. Okay, a similar device, um, and and so now you got competition. Um, I, I don't know about you all, but occasionally I will buy products and it will say, you know, patent pending. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, in, 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 in Hillary, um, when it says patent pending, it's not necessarily a guarantee that nope. the, the, it will be granted. No, and actually, this, so I, I never knew this before researching, doing a little research for today's podcast. That doesn't mean that necessarily only that they have filed and they're kind of, you know, waiting for the copy or the patent office to respond. There's actually two types of applications. And one is the non-provisional, I'm just ready to move ahead. I want you to review it for real. The other one is a provisional application, which is sort of like declaring your early interest. Like I'm letting you know right now, I want to do this. I'm going to give you some information and you get one year to fill in the full 
the full application. So it's actually that provisional one where you can say patent pending, um, but you only have a year. So all you're doing is sort of marking your territory early on. You're giving yourself a little bit of extra time. And I guess if you want to go ahead and start selling the product, um, you can, you've, you've, you know, sort of marked your territory, but yeah, if you, if you fail at the process and, and someone comes along and maybe improves on it and does it a little better, they might be successful. So. Ooh. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Man. So you said, you said utility patent and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are three major types of patents. There's utility patent. What we think of as the regular things that you patent, mm -hmm. meaning um, I built this new cool phone and so I'm going to patent it or whatever. Then there's plant patents, which we, we discussed briefly, which is I am, I am patenting this particular color of rose, shape of rose, or not just roses, but every plant, right? I, I have made a new zebra striped rose, which by the way, if anybody is out there doing that, I want one. Um, <laughs> because how cool <laughs> is that? But that, that kind of thing. And then there is design patents. And design patents are weird, right? Because, so just for listeners' general edification, there are things you cannot patent. You can't patent a chair because chairs have been around since people figured out that they didn't want to sit on the ground, right? Like there's been a type of chair. And so what you do if you want a chair patent is you, you make a design, like say a wingback chair or a fainting couch, or a lounger chair, or something like that. Or, 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 or Nia, I mean, think the three of us are quote-unquote office workers. Think about the difference or the changes in the designs of office chairs. Right. Mm -hmm. Since we've been, you know, do, you know, since we've been bureaucrats at VCU, right? Okay. In each of those uh, Hillary, are the designs are probably patented, right? They yeah, but it's but it's going to be like Nia said. It's not necessarily for the chair as a whole. That's that's the key. It's the it's the tiny extra curve in the lumbar area because my research <laughs> has shown my research has shown that this and it's the you know I've got one of those little bars behind my chair right now that's you know it moves it moves up and down to support the spine. I would bet you that the first one was fixed in place, and someone said I'm going to make a movable one, and they probably could have gotten a patent on that component there. Someone said I'm going to make a thinner one. I'm going to make one that's padded. Who knows? And all I'm of going those to make it, I'm going to make it out of bean bags, right? <laughs> like I'm nice. going to make this chair out of that, <laughs> uh, or whatever. I, I'm, mm -hmm. and then that way they can patent a thing that's what you were saying, Captain Obvious, right? Because if they just came up with a wooden chair and said, "I'm going to patent this chair," everybody would say, "You can't do that. It's a chair." But it, we all have chairs. That's not a. You haven't made a substantive change to it, mm -hmm. or a design element change to it that is unique mm -hmm. to the to the chair it's to the function of the chair or the appearance of the chair yeah so design patents are weird because a huge amount of clothing doesn't get patented because a a basic sling dress is a place basic sling dress 
And so when companies say, I'm going to sue this person for making a knockoff, they really can't. Yeah. They, they can make you grumpy and they can fuss you up in, in court yeah. for a while, but it's not going to go anywhere because a judge is going to say, I can't tell these two dresses apart. Yeah. Like they're not, not for patent though, but fashion can be copyrightable. Right. Because it's so got creative elements. You, okay. Mm-hmm. But if so, it had, yeah, the design patent has to be basically those creative design elements for something that we could otherwise get a patent, right? Like it's the design of a device or a chair. I would bet the difference could be like, you know, fat shoes that are just made for fashion would probably be copyright. I bet like Dr. Scholl's and all of those ones that have uh, art, specific arch support and research gone into it. I actually, I don't know. I bet those are probably patented. Okay. So the difference being scientific, basically. Yeah. I can show scientifically that my thing is different as opposed to aesthetically. Yeah. Which is, which is why you don't patent songs, you copyright songs, because yep. they're aesthetically different. But music itself uses more or less the same scale, right? Like mm-hmm. we only have tonal scale that humans can hear of a certain yes. yeah. amount. So you have to make it. it, it ha- okay, I see. So I want to ask you about something because it came up when I was looking for things that I was interested in, in with the patents. And that is this Eiffel Tower at night. So turns out that it is illegal to take a photograph of the Eiffel Tower at night. And it's because <laughs> of the light pattern that's, that lights up the Eiffel Tower. It's a, it's a copyright issue, right? Like its appearance is very specific and France wants to, like everything in France, they're very particular about their things. <laughs> I'm not trying to be ugly, but they have, a whole, they have a whole institution that's dedicated to keeping stupid words out of their language. Like they, and they're also one under copyright law. They have much stronger protections for moral rights, they call them, which is where an author can object to certain ways their work is used just because of the damage to their reputation. Oh, so in France, no fan fiction. Mm. I've, I take these two characters and I make them do something very adult when they shouldn't be doing those adult things with each and you, other. And you, and you make the setting right in front of the Eiffel Tower at night. <laughs> <laughs> and you just offended. Just You've just offended, offended everyone. <laughs> Hillary, with what you just described, yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time in a French prison, okay? I mean, because you basically have crossed so many lines in France. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know if you would spend any time in a French prison. But, I mean, that just sounds like like the ultimate, you know, offense in France, right? <laughs> This brings up like it's kind of similar in patent because a lot of things in copyright have the, the the concept is the same in both where the creator, the inventor, whoever gets these exclusive rights to their work, which means they get to exclude everyone else from using them. So no, you can't take a picture of it uh, in patent. It's no, you can't sell my product. But there's also we were talking about the chairs before you could improve on someone's invention. But if your new invention relies on a patent from someone else, you're going to owe them money. Yes. Which I, to me, is the most complex. I, I just can't imagine a more complex web 
of, of, of anything is these thousands and thousands and thousands of patents that exist related to every technology, every uh, cars, phones, everything we use every day. And everyone's connected to each other and everyone's passing money back and forth and figuring out who, who do I owe? Like, I think I'm making this tiny improvement to a phone and it's built on these 10 other patents. So who am I going to have to pay right. as a part of my new invention? Well, and the thing about the Eiffel Tower is the Eiffel Tower itself was built, you know, a zillion years ago. And so it is not the issue. The issue is the mm-hmm. lines, which were put in 1985. And so they're under a, a, a copyright because yeah. they're an artistic, it's considered mm-hmm. an artistic work. The lights on the Eiffel Tower, which, by the way, I've seen the Eiffel Tower at night. It's not particularly artistic, but that uh, that's my Ouch. personal opinion. That's my personal opinion. I'm... But so the copy of the Eiffel Tower that's in Las Vegas mm-hmm. is actually legal yep. because the Eiffel Tower itself is not patentable in the sense that it's a or it's yeah, it's it's in the public domain, so right. it would have been protected by copyright, but it's old enough. But, the, but it's but no the, longer. But the lights, they can't do the lights in Vegas the way they do the lights in Paris because they're still under. So Copy I'm sure in Vegas, but yeah. I'm mm-hmm. sure in Vegas they're done in neon anyway. So like, it, you know, I'm sure it's but, but, not but, particularly relevant, but it is an interesting nuance. And the, the, the thing that I was looking at said, it's not so much the lights or rather the picture that you take. It's the sharing of the picture. So you can't make money off of the picture or you can't make like likes or whatever off of the mm-hmm. picture. You could take the picture for yourself. It's illegal, but who's going to find out and who's going to care if you never show it to anybody. It's when you put it up on Instagram or your Facebook page, this is me in front of the Eiffel Tower at night. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you're, you're in trouble. Yep. And, 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 this, and this goes back to, again, a previous podcast episode uh, uh, the, where Hillary joined us, it, you know, wh- one of the purposes of patents and copyrights is the the creator, the the, the inventor, okay, um, is given, if you will, uh, legal protection so that they can go ahead and make money. It was, it, it, in part, it's designed to go ahead and incentivize people to be creative, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you know, it's actually to, that exact same, it's the very same part of the constitution as copyright. Um, and the only difference in the two really that, that far back is whether we're talking about the progress of science, which is the term of the time that meant knowledge, that's copyright stuff, and the useful arts, which is the word to describe everything we're talking about useful arts everything you could invent everything you could make so you're right it's the exact same idea of creating that incentive there but at the same time as nia's comments are pointing out okay in in hillary you just went ahead and uh and used one of the key phrases in uh uh copyright law in particular okay um is something in the public domain Right, um, because if something is no longer covered by relevant copyright laws, you know you can anybody can go ahead and use it and put it in, you know, a book, a piece of music, or you know whatever the case may be, because 
it's in the quote unquote public domain. Uh, and that's where we get these pitched battles about laws being extended or mm -hmm. laws extending, if you will, um, legal protection for those who own patents or who own copyrights, right? Um, because if somebody still has ownership of the patent or the copyright, as, as Hillary just pointed out, okay, um, you know, Hillary wants to make a small change to a phone, right? I mean, and phones are phones. But if somebody has a patent and her improvement draws upon or uses or is based on or can only work because of somebody else's patent, then her attorneys are going to have to negotiate with the attorneys of the owner of the patent to figure out how much of every dollar she may make she's going to have to give to the original patent owner. And I would like to cynically point out that the phones that come out every year, the iPhone 2746, it's out now, <laughs> and, and Samsung and Android, they're all, they're all guilty of it is they make a tiny tweak because that can, that can re-up their, their patent, right? If they make a tiny tweak within their own system, they can say, aha, we need to update our patent, which pushes out the date at which it becomes public domain further. And so that's why it's really smart for companies to do that on a regular or annual or every other year sort of basis, because it pushes out their patent, which pushes out the length of time that anybody can make a legitimate copy. Because once it's in the domain, people can make a legitimate copy. Like, Turns out with music from the 20s, which is some of my favorite jazz music, is now entering the public domain, which means that singers now can, can use those songs and record those songs mm -hmm. without having to pay any royalties to the people who wrote those songs or the people who originally recorded them. Yeah. And if somebody, if somebody who had owned it had simply re-recorded it, 10 years later, it would push that date out 10 years, right? Or Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't push out the date. So that's the thing about recordings, the date of the underlying oh. composition, it could go into the public domain, but each oh, okay. recording can get its own copyright. Yes. Gotcha. But only okay. everyone can, once it's in the public domain, everyone can record that same song over and over again. They only get the rights to their particular version of it. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. But 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 I was what I was saying about phones though is accurate, right? If you mm -hmm. make a change to a phone, then yeah, and I think at some you know at some point the underlying patent could could probably expire. But you yeah you have this cascading effect of all of these tiny change functional changes over time that build that you know your system right the system won't work. Your particular way of creating this thing is is still not going to be replicable because you have made. It. I mean honestly, that's just keeping it as proprietary as possible you've right. got to do that um and keep making those changes yeah so you and brought one up something the, one of the brilliant masters at that is walt disney was walt disney who managed to keep mickey mouse the, the disney corporation has managed to keep mickey mouse under under what um oh copyright ex extensions copyright, of the right. term yeah so actually i wanted to you made a point that made me I don't know what I really wanted to discuss with both of you, because I think it's, it's interesting. 
is that copyright has undergone has been and corporations like Disney right have lobbied for extending the term of copyright. So when copyright law, I, copyright law and patent law came out at the same time right the Constitution said you got to do this 1790 was the first patent because you get the first patent act I believe. Um, came out in the US so they, that's when they were open for business, I think. Um, but copyright used to be a much shorter term. I think it was, I don't even, it, I think it was 14 the, years. Yeah, it wasn't first, even the 20 dependence. Was, it was 14 years. Yep. You could renew for another 14. And right now the standard is the life of the creator or author plus 70 more years. Years, yes. And it used to be, the term used to be shorter than what patent is now. Patent is a 20 year term. And I believe there may be some like five year, a few year extension for uh, maybe things like drug discoveries, medical devices, or that kind of thing. But can you imagine, can you imagine a world in which proprietary pharmaceutical drugs could be kept under patent for a hundred years? Right? The, maybe the life would be invented for 70 years or something like, can, it would be no generics, because, no generics right, after 20 years. Because right? the price would never come down. Mm-hmm. And that's if kind of where copyright could get, is. If somebody could get a patent on a drug, a cancer, right, life-saving drug, and they kept it for 150 or 100, however many years it is for the life of the patent. I mean, for the same as copyright, you're right. It would be, it would be horrible because it, they could charge whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and in some cases, we know they would because we saw that guy with the HEP um, treatment who raised it 700% when he bought the oh yeah 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 when he, he bought the uh, shrik healy yeah. i can't remember his name but anyway and he said he did it for his shareholders right he was trying to make money for his shareholders so you could justify it in some way like that but it went up enormously and people couldn't afford it mm-hmm. so, and that's what i think illustrates too to me with every copyright term extension i think you know it's gone to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court kind of said, well, look, the constitution says it has to be like limited, limited times and 20 years is limited times, 50 years, 70 years, life. It's all, it's all limited times. So it's fine. But I think it's not still serving that underlying purpose. We're trying to promote progress of science and useful arts. And in that way, I think patent does a better job because you get you know, the ability to create, for example, generic drugs in a much shorter turnaround. Um, with copyright, the length is so long. And I think there's a case to be made there, right? When these, the songs you're talking about fall into the public domain, they get, they get a new life, right? right? They get a new life by people being able to use them in all sorts of new creative ways. And that may not be paying the original author or creator, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is not necessarily for the person to get paid. The purpose is we want to promote progress of science and useful arts. And the best way we've, you know, thought to do that is to make sure people can get paid for a limited time. Well, and in the case of art, like we don't pay Vermeer, but we go stare at them because they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And Right, and, and we celebrate museums, which creates jobs, which exactly. enriches the culture. Right, you don't need copyright anymore at some point. And each next generation comes in and goes, "Whoa, that's amazing!" Right, so it's 
perpetuates mm-hmm. the, yeah. Yep, we're trying to create things, but I think the longer term positive impact of them is really when that protection expires and everyone can find new ways to use them. So I, I think it's fascinating. And this is something I don't know, maybe either of you do. Has anyone ever tried to lobby to extend the term of patents? Oh, pharmaceuticals do all the time. Yeah, pharmaceuticals have. But they um, lose. <laughs> well, it, it, and what's interesting, what we frequently see as the source of court cases is pharmaceutical companies um, or companies of other medical devices and improvements, when their patents are about ready to run out, they will actually pay like a premium to their competitors or those who might make generic versions of their drug or their medical device to not produce, okay? And it's easy. It may be less money than you'd make producing, but it's easier money. Okay. Right. And, um, and at well, times. And it's quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, because then it, we won't make a thing. We won't make a generic of your thing if you won't make a generic of our thing. Oh, my and, goodness. And, and um, some states have attempted to um, break those kinds of arrangements under the logic that it is uh, anti competitive. Okay, mm-hmm. um, um, and 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 many state and lower federal court judges are have practically begged the United States Congress to go ahead and clarify this, right? I mean, because for consumers, um, you're talking about prices remaining, you could argue, artificially high for essential drugs and medical devices. The logic of the companies is we dumped a whole bunch of money up front, okay, and um, we are now finally beginning to see positive net revenues, okay, to offset all of our costs, right? But this is, this is a very controversial practice, if you will, yeah. and it's all related to, you know, as Hillary described it, the limited amount of time, okay, you get patent protection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is whether that time is really calibrated, I guess, to the, you know, the state of the industry. Is 20 years enough to really start seeing the returns you need to I keep, because right, the underlying thing to keep promoting, to keep inventing, to keep creating. Yeah. Because that's the incentive, right? You shouldn't just be able to coast along. You shouldn't be able to invent one thing as a company and coast along on it for a hundred years. You've got to keep improving and inventing. So where's that sweet spot, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Is, you know, you know, 20 years too short is 50 years too long. Um, You know, where is that sweet spot? Well, and pharmaceuticals, the, the market is a, complex because they they make more of their r&d money back in the united states than they make in most other countries in the world you also have a nuanced issue of how many people in the united states does it take to make up the r&d cost because the r&d cost is often 
not made up in other parts of the world because they're sold at cost or at very minimum rates above cost because of the way those governments um, negotiate contracts with pharmaceuticals and or because some people are just too poor to pay any more than it costs to make the actual pill. Nia, right? there, are, so, there are governments that don't let... <laughs> They don't let companies the charge consumers whatever they want. I know, shocking, isn't it? Um, but one well, could well, argue well, well, that one could argue that in, in the flip of that, what pharmaceuticals would say, in mm-hmm. fairness to them, is if everyone did that, right? If the richest company, if the richest company country in the world rather was not willing to foot the bill, we wouldn't be able to afford to do these to do these drugs. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to afford to go out and experiment because for everyone that they find that works, there's oh. hundreds that don't, yeah. right? And they've thrown away all that money. That's, that's why with the vaccines, when we were talking um, to Dr. Twig and she was saying the reason that the, the federal government bought into a whole bunch of different vaccine makers was that somebody had to get it right. Somebody was going to make it work. And we needed to bet that on all of them because we weren't sure who was going to be turns out that a lot of them were able to make it work and that's great because of a lot of the pre-work that had been done but we got lucky with that um i know the rest of the world right now doesn't feel particularly lucky so i'm not trying to be blase about that but we as a world got lucky about that uh speaking of COVID 19 vaccines um uh hillary uh did you see this week um that there is a dispute between moderna and the United States federal government because Moderna's patent for their COVID-19 vaccine, okay, was, it was a shared patent. You had researchers working for Moderna, but Um. also researchers for the federal government who are, Mm -hmm. they're both listed on the approved patent application ah so who owns they it, didn't work. or that's okay there is a specific line well in some of my reading i saw that said it is it, i think it used the word dangerous it is dangerous to jointly apply for a patent for an invention <laughs> an invention if you have not already worked out in writing exactly how those right sharing right sharing is going to work because you can both do whatever you want so you better hey. come to an agreement and, and and that's you know part of the dispute, right? Oh because, uh, um, and, and again, I mean, you know, Nia was talking about you know the big rush to go ahead and find, you know, hopefully a vaccine, and we yeah. ended up with multiple vaccines that proved, you know, somewhat effective at, you know, minimizing uh, the the rate of incidence or minimizing uh, the the scope of uh, of uh, and severity of of the illness. But um, uh, I, I was just fascinated by this. I mean, in, in, mm-hmm. in one of the things I wanted to ask you, Hillary, was this. How often can government researchers and employees be listed as holders of patents? I mean, because, you know, the federal government, not only does it outsource, mm-hmm. you know, contract with third-party vendors to do a lot of research, but a lot of government, you know, bureaucrats are subject matter experts who do a lot of cutting edge research. Mm-hmm. Do you know how often government employees are like patent holders? 
I mean, this this kind of sort of strikes me as something that, you know, most government agencies would say, you can't be a patent holder. On well, the other yeah. hand, think about you, uh, research universities. Uh, yep. Well, I was just going to. Do individuals who work for the government own the patent or does the agency with which they work? Isn't that one of those things where if it's part of your work as the agency, then the agency owns just well, like if you were at VCU and you were doing research in a lab here at VCU, but you were doing it on VCU's dime and under VCU's whatever umbrella, then it would belong to VCU, not the individual, right? Or does it jointly belong? So it, mm. it, there's something called, in terms of government-funded research and where VCU falls into this, there's something called, I believe it's pronounced the Bayh-Dole Act, which was passed by Congress in 1980. And before that, I believe the case was it like if the NIH of the federal government funded research, they were the owners of that. And what this act did, which I, you know, presume it was trying to write like promote and say, you know, incentivize research, promote commercialization, right? The, all, all the things that research universities are really pushing right now. It said, even if you get this federally funded research, um, the university or even indiv you know, individuals could be the owners of that research or the, re the industry partners they work with or that kind of thing. So it was letting them take on those rights. And then at the VCU level, right? There's VCU will, will own it, but there is like, it's, it's that same licensing regime, right? Like there is a share, a cost sharing or revenue sharing agreement um, with individuals. Now, I don't know as much how this plays into, right, if the NIH, is a co-inventor if they own the patent on this. I know that employees of the patent and trade office can't own patents, or at least they, maybe they can't apply for them while they're working there. But I don't know what the NIH, <laughs> I don't know what the NIH would do. So hence is, why we're going to court on this, right? Because someone yeah. somewhere is gonna have to, so, uh, okay. Right. Do they Can do I they just... want to license and make a bunch of money? Do they want to give away the right to reproduce this vaccine for free? Right. I mean, I the NIH did part of the research, but this comes back to Augie's absolute like rule in in everything, which is understand administrative law, please, if you're going to try to run a country, because what should have happened was they should have negotiated with Moderna before they ever started working on something. They should have had an agreement that said, we will, we will each own 50% of this patent or, or something Yeah. such that. Yeah. There's any number of ways this could have gone to where we don't, we now don't have a dispute. Okay. Mm -hmm. With the second most effective or one of the two most effective right. COVID-19 vaccines, right? Because um, this just really looks, I mean, it's just the, if nothing else, it just has the appearance of looking bad, right? <laughs> well, it looks rushed and disorganized, which it was rushed and disorganized, <laughs> but somebody should have taken, um, Hillary, you may not know this, but one of Augie's sort of tenets of the Trump presidency, and he's not trying to be ugly, but he was like, imagine what Trump could have done if he had people who actually understood how to use administrative law, like how to use the code of federal regulations, how to, how mm -hmm. to announce things and bring them in 
you know, yeah, within, the type, the, within the way the law works. Yeah, because in most, most presidential administrations, they would have gone ahead and vetted this through, and, and it would have slowed things down, but they would right. have vetted this through the attorneys, um, through the, you know, the impacted agencies, um, you know, you know, just to, to give you, and again, this is a COVID-19 example, and it, and it takes us somewhat away from the, 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 the topic of this episode, but there's a reason why it took the Biden administration a couple months to come up with the OSHA employee vaccination emergency regulation. And mind right. you, it was an emergency <laughs> regulation and they cranked it out in two months and people were complaining, well, when is the Biden administration going to announce this? Well, a- according to its authorizing legislation, OSHA has to go ahead and vet it before they go ahead and announce it. Right. If they don't, that's where they run into trouble. They still might run into trouble, okay? But they're less likely if in, in you know, Nia, Hillary, you know, the three of us, we all know this because we work at VCU, right? You got to dot your I's, you got to cross your T's, right. right? And sometimes it's a pain in the butt, but that's what you do because you work in the government, right? Right. You don't ever just go out and buy a thing. You have an internal requisition that goes to a person who signs it, that goes to another person who signs it, that goes to a finance office who makes sure that you're buying it from the right person. And then you're allowed to buy the thing. If you go buy the thing and it doesn't fit any of those, guess what? You bought a thing for yourself. The university (laughs) is not going to pay you back. Mm -hmm. So I hope you didn't buy a jet because that's not the vendor we buy jets from. So... And to bring it back to the podcast, you know, to Hillary, to your point, if the purpose of patents and copyrights were to promote certain, if you will, goods, either individual or collective, Mm -hmm. how do we achieve those? And and this is where the conflict arises, right? This is where you got to manage, okay, the the pros and the cons, or if we do X and it benefits the individual patent holder, what will be the cost to the collective, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I like Hillary's idea of making copyrights the same length as patents in the sense that you should be able to make money off of that for a certain length of time because you wrote it or you sang it or you, or you built it or you crafted it in some way and there should be some celebratory amount of time that you make money but then and maybe that's the end of your life like maybe it's the day that you die that stops being Mm -hmm. a thing that you own your 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 estate shouldn't get a hundred lifetime well and didn't create that thing themselves didn't i mean so we're in like so we're anti-air, anti-airs uh, uh, on this podcast? I am. <laughs> but I don't have offspring. So you have offspring. I'm just saying. It's every person for themselves in my world. Actually, I just, I'm with Hillary that if, if on the day that a, a, a song composer died, 
that their songs moved into the public domain, then more people would record them, do interesting things with them. More mm. generations would hear those songs yes. and had heard them before. But see, the and companies who actually the own, companies right? who actually own all of the rights. Oh, this is gonna sound I was about to say something. I'm gonna say it anyway. They love it when they die because we're gonna make a retrospective. We're gonna show, we're gonna to license to show all of their old uh, concerts on TV. We're gonna release a whole bunch of merchandise. We're gonna release the collector's edition on vinyl. That's a cash cow. Well, I mean, think about the debate that broke out when Prince died uh. in regards to um uh how his copyrighted material, okay, would be man, you know, would be packaged, manufactured, sold, mm -hmm. okay, um, etc. Because we're talking big bucks for right. some of your better known artists. Right? And his will apparently was unclear. Can I mm -hmm. just suggest to, to all the patent holders and copyright holders listening to this podcast, or people who will eventually be one of those people listening to this podcast? Please have a will. It's a small but important thing. Everybody should have a will anyway. But if you have anything where people will fight over it, you should fix that before you die. Like, it's just a kind thing to do to your, to your, to your heirs. It's to make it clear what you want done with your, with your stuff. Because I don't think Prince expected what happened after and I don't think a lot of people do. I think they think, oh, my family will be fine. Yeah. They'll all get along. And I'm like, ooh, not with money. Yeah. Money makes people bananas. But, but I agree with you, Hillary, that that's an NC for me. That's another reason why that, should, that copyright should stop then. So the companies can't exploit, you know, it's the Elvis blues years, right? Like, no, stop, stop. Let's just let Elvis rest in peace, please. Although I'm not entirely certain Elvis is dead, but you know what I mean. So conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. Um, I am actually. By the I am, way, I am actually certain, by the way, that Elvis is dead, and so is Jim Morrison. Both of those make me sad. Speaking of Elvis, um, uh, and, and because Christmas is just around the corner, one of my prized vinyl, okay, uh, LPs, um, is the Elvis Christmas. Um, <laughs> Um, he's got a version of a blue Christmas okay, uh -huh. that is just phenomenal. <laughs> um, so for listeners, okay. Um, if you're looking for, okay, a good Christmas, uh, album, I highly recommend, um, uh, uh, the Elvis Christmas, uh, uh, yes. Which I anyway. feel certain the copyright is owned by Lisa Marie, see, right? We could probably get a snippet of that at the outro for this episode. It's fair. Just for fair use. <laughs> uh to illustrate okay. uh, I, so don't we'll, I don't know if we'll no. do that or not I don't so feel like but only because but only because it's too early for christmas music not because we don't <laughs> believe in the power of fair use <laughs> hillary hillary wants to see listeners nia and i sue go to jail that's right <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. This is her secret plan to take over the podcast she wants yes, to be right? she wants us okay. to be in jail so that she can make it the <laughs> the copyright the free the open access copyright um podcast hey hillary thanks for coming today thank you so much this has been a lot of fun we really appreciate it and we appreciate your good humor about this because we know we're silly about this but we also know it's serious stuff so i want to end with if anybody on campus has a copyright question or a patent question 
and and they are concerned about their intellectual property, you really do need to talk to Hillary, Hillary Miller at the library. Um, she can help you. We're going to put her, well, we'll put her picture up and you'll be able to find her information there as well. We'll have her email address because you need to protect yourself as much as you can. Um, and, or you need to consider alternate ways of publishing your, your materials. Mm -hmm. So she can help you with both those yes. things, both open access and copyright. So thanks also, so much. Yep. I'll also throw in a plug for VCU Innovation Gateway. So if you're working at VCU or student at VCU and you think you might have an invention, make sure you talk to me and I'll get you to them or talk to them first. Don't, don't go share Don't go spread the word just yet. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell Nia your search terms yet. No, you can't. Yeah, do yeah no, can't don't do tell me your search terms. Talk to Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks, Thanks Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.